Father, I do ask that you would speak by the power of your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name that you plant your word deep in our hearts, change our lives, and enable everyone, whether here in this building or live streaming, that we'd all be better equipped to know how to win the fight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, several years ago in Australia, there it was so dry and it was so hot and dried, and there had been just a drought for a period of months. And it was time for their, their annual war games and battle training of their military. But because they were so concerned, because of how dry it was, that a fire might break out if they used live ammunition, they decided there'd be no live ammo during this training time. In fact, they decided even uh, the, the, the flare that comes with a blank being shot could risk a fire start. So they said no blanks. So what they ended up doing is during their training, during these war games, the soldiers would shoot the gun and just go bang, <laughs> bang, or rat-a-tat-tat-tat. Or they throw like a grenade and go boom. Anyways, as you get this picture in your mind, that's about how effective I think a lot of spiritual warfare is against the enemy. I mean, think of it for... A lot of what I've witnessed in different places is there's a whole lot of noise going on, but not much is actually happening. Where I experienced that in a big way was about 30 years ago. I'd had a lot of experiences dealing with those who were suffering from demonic possession and oppression. But there was a, a case that came to me that uh, was, was, was just very different. This a lady brought her son. Her son was seven years old. She brought him uh, to a prayer meeting. She said, she called and said, can I bring my son? I something's wrong with him. He hadn't been able to speak now for a year. He was traumatized. But every time he seems to get around praise music, he starts, uh, he starts acting so violent. And she said, I don't know what to do. I said, well, bring him. I said, we have a prayer meeting on Monday night. Why don't you just, just come and bring him? And so she shows up with her seven-year-old son at our Monday night intercessory prayer meeting. And as they come in, as soon as, we, as soon as they got in the room and we were singing songs about the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice of the cross, this little boy starts manifesting demons. And so I and a few of the other intercessors got around him, and then he, he just went violent and started attacking us and kicking and biting and scratching and clawing and so we, in the name of Jesus, commanded these demons to come out. But the more, the more we did that, the more was like he had a mocking face and there was a mocking spirit laughing at us and mocking us. And so after that, someone came up to me, because we were unable to get the demons out, someone came up to me and said, you know, there's a conference going on up at a church called Restoration Church. It was up in the Bedford Utils area. At that time, and there's a big conference, and there's going to be a lot of leaders there, a lot of spirit-filled leaders, and they can help with the situation. I thought, well, great, you know, I'm, I'm glad to learn, because I was unable to, to accomplish what I was trying to do. So maybe they can, they can help us. So I asked the lady, I said, "Why don't you bring your son up there, and I'll meet you at this conference?" So she did. She showed up, and her son was fine as long as until he goes into the meeting where the singing, and praising of Jesus was going on. And so I gathered some of the, I went and started talking to some of the leaders. I talked to some of the pastors, and I asked, would you come and help us with this, this little boy? 
And I'm thinking, well, this is, I'm really going to learn a lot you know, watching this. And so they gathered some other intercessors, and they got around this little boy, and they, and they started shouting, and a lot of them were just speaking tongues, speaking in tongues all at the same time, loudly, in the direction of the boy. And, and all that noise that was happening, the boy was unchanged. And there was a whole lot of noise, but there was no power. And so then someone came to me and said, you know, there is a couple here. There's a couple here visiting that their, their specialty is in casting out demons. I said, really? And he said, yeah. And sure enough, he introduces me to this older couple who travels, travels around, and they even had a card, you know, with this ministry on it. And I can't remember what it said, but it had, it had to do with casting out demons. And I thought, okay, well, I'm going to learn now more about why I was unable to get the demons out of this little boy. So they bring him into a room, and this couple comes, and they do all kinds of things that uh, I don't see in the Bible. And all kinds of noise was going on, and the boy is unchanged. So right about that time, the Lord speaks this into my heart. You know what to do. And I did. I knew what to do. And so I told the lady, I said, um, would, you, would you come to my office in four days with your son? And she left with her son, and I went and prayed and fasted for four days. And she comes to my office, and I'm sitting there, and I'm in a chair in the corner, and the door opens, and there's the little boy, the same little boy who attacked me, clawed, bit, kicked me. Same little boy that would just had this mocking face, the spirit. Same little boy that was clearly manifesting demons. She walks in with this little boy, and he sees me across the room. He, and he lets go of her hand. And he starts walking to me. And I'm sitting in the corner. And I'm in total peace. Little boy walks up to me, crawls up into my lap, puts his head on my chest. And I just whisper in Jesus' name, come out. And there's just a little shudder. And then the boy began to speak. I mean, he was, he'd been mute for a year. For, for well, There's lots of things I don't understand about this, but he began to speak, and he became this normal little boy again in just a few weeks. Everything was changed. I tell you all that simply to tell you that we've got to fight this battle with real weapons that really do work. Not just a lot of hype and noise. We've got to make sure we follow biblical patterns of what Jesus and the apostles did in spiritual warfare if we're going to win the battle. And part of winning the battle is knowing how to put on the armor. The most detailed teaching on spiritual warfare in the Bible is in Ephesians chapter 6. And so we started walking through that last week where we were told how to armor up to win the fight. Last week we talked about the first three pieces of the armor, and this week, today, we're going to talk about the next three pieces of armor mentioned. And each piece must be put on. You can't just, it's not your option to have just a piece or two. We've got to have the full armor if we're going to win the fight. By the way, if we do things like we're supposed to do, and we win the fight. We win the battles. We win them. We just have to follow 
the direction that the Word of God has clearly given us. So let's just look at this. We started this last week in Ephesians chapter 6 as we've been ramping up to this passage with some other teachings on spiritual warfare. But Ephesians chapter 6, let's start reading in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Notice that, strong in the Lord. It's not our strength. Can't win the battle in our strength. It's strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God, all of it, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. So last week we saw that our enemy, according to this passage we just read, is powerful, wicked, and cunning. And because our enemy is dark and powerful and wicked and cunning, the only way that we can withstand the assaults that come against us is if we fight this battle in God's strength, not our own. And God has given us his armor. It's God's armor. He's given it to us to use. Again, we cannot pick and choose which pieces. We must put it all on. And if we do, we win the fight. So last week, we looked at the first three pieces of the armor, verses 14 and 15. Let me read those verses. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. You're cinching up the belt of truth. Picture, of course, is of this Roman soldier. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, this verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, you put on the shoes of the gospel. So last week, we, if you missed that message, I'd encourage you to go to gracearlington.com and, and listen to it and uh, can really catch up to, to this. But let me just remind you, these three pieces of armor are so crucial. First of all, you cinch up the belt of truth. You cinch it up. It's the essential piece of Christian armor. Everything really is somehow connected and attached to this. And so we must be rooted and grounded in truth. It is really the centerpiece of our armor is truth. If we're going to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. We talked about several different aspects of how we do that last week. We must stand firm with the truth. We must be grounded in the truth. We must know it. We must believe it. If we're going to be free to win this battle, you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So it's crucial we know it, we believe it, and we win with it. So that's the first piece of armor we talked about last week. The second piece was we must strap on the breastplate of righteousness. It protected the soldier, this breastplate, from arrows and spears and swords, all being thrust at the vital organs of the soldier, namely the heart. The Christian's heart is the primary target of the devil. Now, what protects our hearts from the attack of the enemy is this breastplate of righteousness. Now, of course, when we repent and believe in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we have our sins forgiven. Most Christians understand that piece of it. But more than that, we're also not just our, does he take our sins away. He gives us, Christ gives us his righteousness. That means that we are now holy and blameless in God's sight. So if I'm wearing a breastplate of righteousness, his imputed righteousness, this justification, this gift 
of righteousness given to me when I turn to Christ as my Savior and Lord, when I'm, when I'm putting that on in a sense, I realize it, I believe it, I wear it. That means that I am not going to be, you know, receive the accusations of the devil because my heart is protected knowing I'm righteous now in God. I'm not going to be put under guilt trip and put on and, and shame and condemnation convincing me I'm unworthy to be used by God because I have my breastplate of righteousness. I know I have been made righteous in Christ. And I'm not going to be under condemnation and guilt. So it's so crucial because, remember, the devil is the accuser of the brethren, and he's always accusing us, trying to make us feel like we're unworthy to be used because of how we've blown in the past. And so, so he goes right to the heart, and he's, he's wiping out Christians left and right from serving Christ because they're under condemnation. So we must wear the breastplate of righteousness, believe who we are in Christ. Our identity in Christ is crucial. And third to last week, we talked about putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace. We talked about the one thing we, we, we cannot, under any circumstances, compromise any aspect of the truth of the gospel. If we do, then we do not hold our ground. And we cannot win the battle. We must stand on the gospel. We can't give an inch to this. No compromise. See, the devil will attack the gospel. And, and there's ministers all over in different you know, parts of the world that have given up on the gospel, compromised, watered it down. And once that happens is there's no power for salvation anymore for people. Because the gospel is the power of salvation for people. That's why the devil wants people to compromise and give up on it. we got to dig in. You know, dig those, those shoes of the gospel head, cleats we saw last week. We dig in and make our stand there. We will not give up the gospel. There's only one way to God the Father, see Jesus Christ, his son. He died on the cross, absorbed all of our guilt and shame and sin and judgment, took our place, died in our place, so we could have forgiveness of sins on the third day, rose again, proving it all worked. He did defeat sin, death, and the devil. So this week we want to start on the fourth piece of the armor. And so let's go ahead and look at that. Our fourth, fourth piece is if we're going to win the fight, we must hold high the shield of faith. Ephesians 6.16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, Roman soldiers actually had two shields. There's one that was small and light. That's not the one he's talking about here. That small light one was used in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But there's another shield called the scutum or the war shield. It was four and a half feet tall. Two and a half feet wide. It was the size of a small door. In fact, there was a saying that in the Roman days, if you went to battle, you either came back with your shield or on your shield. That gives us a picture of the size of this. The shield was made with laminated wood. It was covered over with hardened leather. And it was lined around the edges with metal. And there's usually an ornament, iron ornament, uh, decorating the front of it. But they were so large that a man could kneel down and get his entire body behind it. That's the picture of this shield. But it's real important that we understand. <clears throat> in fact, I want to show you a video in just a clip, video clip in just a moment, that we understand that these shields were designed to be linked together. That when, these, the, when the Roman legions, when they would fight, they come out in their different squadrons, they could link together and form the tortoise. Uh, you know, like, like just like a, a big tortoise, 
and, and, and be impenetrable. And I just want you to get a picture of this, of locking shields and then being able to not be able to be penetrated once we have our shields locked. You guys have that clip? Okay, go ahead and run that, would you? Okay, you guys got the picture now, right? And so they were, their shields locked together. If you were in the front, your shield's locked in the front. If you're in the side, the shield is on the side. If you're in the back, the shield's on the back. If you're in the middle, your shield's on top. So everybody's locked together, and the enemy could not penetrate that shield. So he talks about that is the picture of the shield of faith. In verse 16, he says that the shield of faith, if we take up the shield of faith, we're able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now, what are the fiery darts or flaming arrows, depending on your translation? And what does it mean to quench them? Well, in, the, in Paul's day, archers' arrows were sometimes wrapped in cloth, and then dipped in pitch or tar and set on fire. And then they'd be shot into the air, and wherever they landed, they would just start a fire. There'd be a flame. Once it landed, the pitch would just spatter and burn everything that wasn't fire retardant. But these large Roman shields were especially effective in thwarting flaming arrows. In fact, it was said in one ancient document that in the heat of battle, that the shields often bristled with smoking arrows and looked like roasted porcupines. So the devil's flaming arrows, what are they? What is, what is the devil... What, are the, what is the enemy shooting our direction? What are his flaming arrows? Well, there are lies, there are accusations, there's temptations. He's shooting at you doubts and disappointments and discouragements. Whatever he can do to cause injury, whatever he can do to throw us off and get us to back away from loyalty to Christ, that's his goal. For example, I want to show you a little bit. I just want to give you a couple examples of how it looks for us to lock shields. Let's say one of the fiery darts or flaming arrows shot at you is, is hate or malice or the desire for revenge. You're constantly being reminded about what they did, what they said, how they treated you. And it's real easy for you to want to hate. It's easy for you to want revenge. It's easy for you to be full of bitterness and resentment. But instead, you lock shields with other believers. You make sure you 
attending the small group and you've got other believers that know what's going on in your life and you're sharing your struggles. And so some other believers lock shields with you and they, they remind you. Remember, it's a shield of faith. It's something you're believing. They remind you of the promises of God. They remind you, for example, Romans 12, 19 says this, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So they remind you, you don't have to take revenge. God's got this. He will make sure to take care of it. You can let it go. And so what do you do? Because you've locked shields, you extinguish that flaming arrow and you let it go. You trust God to take care of the situation. Let's give you, let me give you another example. Let's say the, the enemy fires you know, the flaming arrow of disappointment at you. And you're disappointed, and, you're, and that's causing you to want to despair and be depressed and, and whine and give up. And, but you still decide, you know, I'm still going to be involved with my small group. I'm still going to have some believers in my life. And I'm open about my struggles, about my disappointment, my despair. And they lock shields with you. And they start to remind you God's promises, like Jeremiah 29, 11. Don't you know, God says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Hey, it's going to be, it's not going to always be like this. God's going to come through for you. Or another one, another, another person you'd like shields with said, remember, God causes all things to work together for your good. He's going to take this before he's done and cause it for your good. You got to believe that. And so as you've locked shields, all of a sudden you're beginning to believe the promises of God again and you extinguish the flaming arrow of the evil one. So we've got to lock shields with believers and keep the protection of faith and the promises of God against the fiery darts that are coming our way. We can't unlock our shields. I tell you, you start to go on it by yourself. You decide you're going to be a lone ranger Christian and you're going to isolate yourself and you're not going to be involved in fellowship anymore and connecting with other believers. And it's just a matter of time before you're probably there's going to be a flaming arrow that's going to get in there and you don't have nobody there to remind you the promises of God and lock shields with you. The devil keeps so many people captured by believing lies. Now remember the definition we're given in Hebrews chapter 11, what faith is. Faith is being certain about what you do not see and sure about what you hope for. And so the devil is shooting these flaming arrows of lies and we need other people to help, help us Continue to be sure about what we hope for, certain about what we do not see. Remind us the promises of God and believe the promises of God. So I, so I want to say in light of all that, some of you joined a Winning the Fight small group. We had about 100 small groups start up. And some of you, we just said, be willing to go for six weeks. A lot of you have already decided you're going to keep going. I want to urge all of the groups to keep going. Keep going. Why? Because we got to keep locking shields. Because after the six weeks is over, we still need each other. We still need to be reminded. You know, it's, it's one of the things that's really been neat about Tracy and I and our marriage for the last 37 years is, is it's very rare that both of us are down at the same time. Very rare. One of us starts to get a little down, the other one's always there. What are we doing? We're locking shields saying, what about this? What about that? Tracy has preached some of my sermons back to me. Well, didn't you say, and didn't you say? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's good. Because, again, I'm going, that's right. And, we, and so we lock shields and we hold together. We need each other, guys. So I just urge you guys, 
as you kind of come into the end of the six weeks of your small group here in just a couple of weeks, that you go ahead and say, you know, why don't we keep meeting? We still need each other. We need to keep locking shields. All right, the fifth piece of armor that we need to put on if we're going to win the fight is we must put on the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation. Now, the helmet, obviously, is to protect the head. And we can say it is there to protect the mind. By the way, do you know where the bulk of spiritual warfare takes place? It takes place in your head. Here's what Paul says. The Apostle Paul says about spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 through 5. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now, what are the strongholds? He's going to tell us. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what are the satanic strongholds that spiritually imprison so many people? What are they? Well, they're mistaken beliefs. By the way, moods don't come out of nowhere. You know, when we are angry or discouraged or depressed or anxious or self-pitying or fearful or irritable, it's likely it's because we are believing something very specific at that time. How you think affects how you feel. But the good news is how you think can be changed. I'd just like to encourage every one of us to get in the habit of doing these three things. It's something that I'm, I, I consciously make myself do. When I begin to feel like I'm slipping into some kind of mood I don't want to be in. Three simple steps. Number one, slow down your thinking. Slow down your thinking. A lot of times we're not even sure why we're feeling anxious. Why do I feel anxious? Why am I irritable? What's going on? Slow down your thinking, first of all. Number two, challenge mistaken beliefs. What am I believing right now that's causing me to feel this way? And is that belief true? Challenge mistaken beliefs. And thirdly, speak the truth to yourself. Speak the truth to yourself and speak the truth to each other. But I want you to notice one of the, one of the truths that we ought to speak to each other over and over again Notice it's called the helmet of salvation. So how does salvation protect our mind, our thinking? Well, obviously, knowing that you're saved, knowing you belong to Christ is crucial. It's so important. Dramatically impacts how you think. And it will dramatically impact how you feel and how you fare against the enemy. But I believe he has primarily one particular aspect of our salvation in mind here. I think he has the future aspect of salvation in mind here. Why do I think that? I think that because of several verses, but let me read one to you. 1 Peter 1.13 says this, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. What's he talking about? He's talking about your mind, right? Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Be alert. Fix your hope 
completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's talking about fixing your hope on something that's coming in the future, when Jesus is coming. See, what is in view here is the power of hope. The power of hope to protect the mind. You know, in the Bible, what enables heroes to overcome fear in the Bible is not bravado, and it's not their belief in their own resources, their own will, their own power. What enables heroes in the Bible to prevail is hope, the power of hope. In the Bible, what enables heroes in the faith to overcome is this. It's hope that there is somebody far stronger than me at work here. You're confident of that. Christian Hope says that, you know, that disappointing situation that I've allowed to impact my life so dramatically is not going to have the last word in God's universe. Christian Hope says it's just a matter of time before God comes through. God's going to come through. I'm, I'm, I've got confidence. I'm confident about the future that he's going to come through for me. And some of you I know have been deeply disappointed. And I have too. And you had such hopes, and some things have not turned out like you wanted them to turn out. And I want you to know that Jesus understands what disappointment feels like. I want you to think about the time that Jesus stood on a hill outside Jerusalem, looked over the city and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as he's weeping, oh, how I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Sounds like disappointment to me. See, I think Jesus understands all about broken dreams. You know, when he was crucified, it seemed like his dream was crucified with him, but it wasn't. Because the truth was, when they put his body in the tomb, they were just putting a seed in the ground. Because God wasn't through yet. See, from that point on, when his body is put in the ground or in the tomb, it's just a matter of time before God's going to come through. Of course, it was three days then. God comes through with the power of the resurrection. But here's the Christian hope. The Christian hope is this. That one day, every wrong will be set right. Every tear will be dried. Every suffering will be redeemed. So Jesus basically says, so get your hopes up, people of God. Get your hopes up. Why? Because it's just a matter of time. So he put on the helmet of salvation to protect the way we think. And how we need to think is, no matter what we're facing, it's just a matter of time. God is not through yet. He will come through. He will come through. Everything that's wrong will be made right. Jesus will make sure of it. And now we get to the sixth piece of armor. The sixth piece of armor is we must unsheath the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Ephesians six seventeen. So he puts his sword in our hands. Why? Well, obviously, one way is so we can resist temptation by quoting Scripture to counter all the devil's temptations like he, Jesus did in the wilderness. In fact, it's interesting. One survey of Christians on the subject of temptation, 81% of those in this poll said that temptation was more potent against them when they had neglected their time in the Word. And you're thinking, well, duh, of course. Of course, because... They don't have their sword, sword working for them in spiritual warfare against temptation. So we must, you know, be in the word on a regular basis to be able to resist temptation. There's no doubt about that. 
And Jonathan spoke about that some on, on, the, on the video during his section. But I want to focus on another aspect of how the Word of God enables us to win spiritual warfare. I want to start with Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews 12, verse 4 says this, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here again, the word of God is likened to a two-edged sword, but for what purpose? What purpose does it have? Well, here the, the focus is what this two-edged sword does to us as we unsheath it. And we're going to see in a moment that if we let this two-edged sword do what it's supposed to do for us, that we will be able to win the fight over the enemy. So what is this supposed to do for us? Now, before we can actually really, I think, grasp what Hebrews 4.12 is saying, we need to have an understanding of what's already been said in the book of Hebrews, what the rest of the passage is talking about. Because earlier in this passage, it says that we should be diligent to enter into God's rest. Now, what is God's rest? To enter God's rest, it's clear that we must, you know, we need to be saved from our sin and the consequences of our sin and the struggles of our sin. And we will spend eternity in, you know, joyfully in God's rest and presence forever and ever and ever. That is the great goal of life. We enter God's rest forever. We enter his rest forever when we get to heaven. That's clear. So everyone who knows Jesus as their Savior and Lord will enter into God's rest forever. But I want you to understand in, this, in the book of Hebrews, it's not only future. We can enter God's rest right now. We can enter God's joy, joyful, peaceful presence now. And we can live in that joyful, peaceful, restful presence of God now, regardless of our circumstances. Hebrews 4.11, the verse right before it says that we need to be diligent to enter God's rest. And if we aren't diligent to enter God's rest, we are following the example of disobedience. Well, the example he's talking about in that passage, I'll just tell you, is the example of Israel in the wilderness. We've gone over this just some weeks ago or months ago. We remember the Israelites didn't trust God in the wilderness. They murmured in their troubles. They wanted to go back to Egypt rather than follow God. So their disobedience was in their unbelief. They wouldn't trust God to take care of them, to give them the victory, to lead them, to give them the very best possible thing for their lives. They didn't trust him for that. They wanted to go back to Egypt. Here's what Hebrews 3.19 says. And so we see that they were not able to enter the rest of God because of their unbelief. Okay, keep this in mind. So the disobedience he's talking about in 4.11, he's talking about the disobedience of unbelief, a failure to trust God. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like the Israelites who did that because their failure to trust God kept them out of God's rest. And it'll keep you out of God's rest. That's why he says this in Hebrews chapter 4, all the way back to verse 2. Look at this. We have had good news preached to us just as they also had good news preached to them. Talking about the Israelites in the wilderness. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith 
in those who heard it. So what they failed to trust was what? The word of God. The word that was preached to them, they failed to trust the promises of God, that he would take care of them, he would guide them, he would give them what they need, the victory, and be merciful to them. But they didn't believe it. They didn't trust him. They murmured in their troubles. They wanted to go back to Egypt rather than follow God. And this, this unbelief is their disobedience he's talking about. Okay, so the word did not profit them. Track with me, guys. I want you to get this. The word did not profit them because they did not believe it. So verse 11 urges them, be diligent to enter the rest. In other words, be diligent to hear the word, be diligent to believe the word. It's going to take diligence, he's saying. Be, 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 be diligent to embrace it, to trust it, to hold it, to be satisfied with it, and don't murmur against God. Don't forsake God. Don't go back to the Egypt of sin. Believe the promises of God. Hold your place there. So if we're going to enter God's rest today, you must be diligent to hear the word, to believe the word, to trust the word, no matter what your circumstances are. Say, I believe the promises of God no matter my circumstances. So if you want to enter into God's rest, live in God's joyful, restful presence, regardless of your circumstances, You've got to be diligent to know his promises and diligent to do them, to believe them. So how do we do that right now? I don't want you to think about just entering his rest in the future in heaven. How do I live in this rest right now? Can you see how it'd be so hard for the devil to really deal with you if you are in the rest of God? If you are in the joyful, restful presence of God, living in that place? So how do we do that? we got to believe God, trust him, hear his word, believe his word, believe his promises. Regardless of our circumstances, here's what he says in Hebrews 3.12. Take care, brethren, that there be there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. So we can't believe God's promises if we don't know God's promises. So it's going to take some diligence. I'm going to have to do some work. I'm going to have to know his word. I'm going to have to study it. I'm going to need to memorize it, meditate on it, be diligent to know it and believe it. Now, with all that in mind, the whole contest is talking about entering into his rest. That in mind, let's go back to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's clear from this passage that one of the functions of the Word of God, when, we, when it comes into us, it's supposed to penetrate very deep, like a sword, through tough, hard layers. And then when it gets there, it's supposed to make judgments about what's down there. By the way, the word judge here, this verse doesn't mean condemnation. It means assess. For example, if I showed you a painting and says, what's your judgment of this painting? I don't mean, what's your condemnation of this painting? I mean, what do you think about it? Is it good or bad? How do you assess it? So the Word of God penetrates to the deepest part of, in our lives and assesses what is down there. Is it good or bad? Now remember, what's at stake here is whether or not we're going to enter into God's rest and live there. We're talking about entering his rest right now, no matter what we're going through. And the way that we do that, the way that we enter into his rest is that we believe and trust in his promises. 
So what we need protection for, we need to be protected from unbelief in here, down deep. We need to be protected from this. We day in and day out, we need to fight unbelief in the promises of God because it's unbelief that's going to keep us out of his rest. And the word of God has the power and the ability to penetrate to the bottom of our defenses and break through our deceptions and expose what is really there. Belief or unbelief. It assesses our thoughts and our intentions as to whether they are believing thoughts and intentions or unbelieving thoughts and intentions way down deep. Are we trusting his promises or not? And we need help with that. John Piper says, and in those moments, the most important thing is this. Am I trusting God or am I suddenly beginning to put my faith in compromise or half-truths or expediency? And all the while, I know that I'm utterly fallible and prone to self-justification and liable to deception so that I may think I'm walking by faith when I perhaps am becoming callous to the truth and slipping into unbelief in the promises of God. And if you get there, that's what makes you vulnerable in spiritual warfare when you slip into unbelief. But the word of God is active and powerful and it penetrates to the bottom of our lives and it goes down there and it just rips the, the unpleasant, you know, the pleasant mask. Actually, it's, it's come pleasant to us of, of ugly sin that we've decided to harbor. By the way, the only reason anybody sins is because at some level they're deceived. They start believing the lies instead of believing the promises of God. And sin whispers, whispers through the desires of the flesh and the rationalizations of the mind, things like this. Your only hope of future happiness is to have an abortion. It whispers, you will not have a chance in the future if you don't cheat on this test. It whispers things like, you won't be noticed if you and liked unless you dress provocatively. It says things like, you're going to lose the one person who seems to care for you if you don't compromise your sexual standards. It says things like, God just made you gay. Stop fighting it. It says things like, why don't you take a look at that pornographic site? It'll make you feel better. It whispers things like, you know, you won't have job security if you speak up about the dishonest practices at your workplace, so don't say a word. It says things like, your life's going to be wasted in this relationship if you don't get a divorce. It whispers, you're a, you're a fool, and you're going to look like a fool. You're going to look weak if you don't get revenge. See, every one of these statements I just made to you is a lie. And what Hebrews 3.13 calls it is the deceitfulness of sin. Now those lies sometimes, follow me now, sometimes those lies lodge themselves down real deep. Deep in our hearts and our thoughts and intentions. And they seem, when they're down there, they seem like they're true. Unshakably true. Because of the hardness of the deception that actually encases them. What is going to break through that deception? 
See, if that condition, in that condition, we're not believing the promises of God, we're trusting in the promises of sin. So how can we escape that deceit? Remember now, if you're deceived, you know, the way one of the evidences of being deceived is you don't know you're deceived, right? Because if you know you're deceived, you're no longer deceived, right? So if I'm deceived, what's my hope? What's going to break through this thing that's down there that is a lie, that's a sin, that's encased in deception, and that is making me vulnerable in spiritual warfare? What, is, what can break through? Only one thing. The Word of God. The Word of God, the good news of God's promises, His warnings, His judgments are sharp enough and living enough and active enough to penetrate to the bottom of my heart and show me the lies that they are indeed lies. Abortion will not create a wonderful future for me, neither will cheating or dressing provocatively or throwing away my sexual purity or keeping quiet about dishonesty at work or divorce or vengeance. What rescues me from this deception is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. The Word of God promises that it will it just, I mean, the promises of God, the Word of God is like throwing a great window of bright morning sun on the shiny back roaches of sin that are crawling around there masquerading as, as satisfying pleasures of my heart. God has given you his promises, his word, to protect you from deep deception. The deep deception of sin that tries to harden our heart and lure us away from God and lead us to destruction. And the word of God is like this sharp two-edged sword. And they can penetrate deeper than any deception can get away. There's nothing that can hide from it. It can get down there and it can cut through and it can reveal what is truly valuable and what's truly worth trusting, what's truly worth giving my life for, the Word. But again, you're going to have to be diligent to know it and you're going to have to be diligent to believe it. And if you do, then you'll enter into God's rest on a day-to-day -day basis. And that'll be very disarming for the enemy against you and you will win the fight. Amen. 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 I mean, let's stand together. Uh, Carol, why don't you, would you come on up here? I'm going to ask Carol to say a prayer over everyone here. A lot of the spiritual warfare where Carol's at is a lot more overt and I just want her to just pray over uh, our congregation today. Just really a prayer of, of walking really in victory that is more than overcomers over the enemy. So I'm going to pray, and then I'll ask Carol to close us. Father, we thank you for this armor. And, Lord, and we pray, would you, by your grace, enable us, Lord, to really put it on every day. And, Lord, and we thank you for your word today, the power of your word that can go down in the depths of who we are and really, Lord, cut through the deception and show us what really matters. And, Lord, you know where everyone else, in the, everyone, is in the, everyone in this room is and everyone live streaming is? And we're just, we just ask you, Lord, that you would set everyone free from any and every stronghold and bondage they're wrestling with. In the name of Jesus. With you in heavenly places, Lord. And I thank you that you've hidden us with you inside of Christ, with, inside of God with Christ. Lord, I thank you that our position in you is secure in our identity. And Lord, we're fighting battles that you've 
you've won the war. And Lord, I pray that our focus would always be on the face of God, as has been shared today, that our faith would be because our, our focus is fixed upon your face. Lord, not on the circumstances, but on the face of our Father. As Peter walked on waves, Lord, when he looked in the face of God, that we would be focused upon your face. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a man of war and you've called us to battle, but you've called us to a winning war. I thank you for the sword of the spirit that came out of your mouth in Revelations and that your word as it comes out of our mouth with power and with authority and with boldness, uncompromised, and Lord, with total conviction of our obedience, Lord, your word your word gives us the confidence of a winning battle. I thank you for what you paid for on the cross, Jesus, that that was the finality of the war being won and that we walk in the victory of Calvary and the resurrection power that you've given us. We praise you for that, Lord. We praise you that you're coming for a victorious bride. You're coming for an overcoming church. You're coming for a body without spot or wrinkle. And Lord, we have that confidence in you. And we give you the praise and we give you the glory. In Jesus' precious, mighty name. Amen. 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 And if you uh, have any questions for our staff, there's a connection coffee in this corner. We'd love to answer your questions. Also, if this is your first Sunday, I'd love to meet you up here at this welcome area. We also have some leader couples down here. Be glad to pray for you. God bless you guys. Have a great day.